What's up, world? This is Jesse Rich with Jesse Rich Podcast, and happy Monday morning driving in, unless you have Memorial Day off. Then it'll be a happy Tuesday morning riding in. And sticking on that topic, since I don't really know a lot about Memorial Day, I decided that I was going to do some research, and I got a couple of things I thought we were going to talk about today. We're going to talk about... um. Memorial Day, some of the where it comes from, some of the facts about it, other things like that. We also have what does it mean to me? It was an article written by, um, let's see here. I think it was written by Patty Sawal, which was the mother of Seth J here. And we're also going to talk about the American dream and just a little bit about that. Maybe how other countries see the American dream, how we are described as American dream all the way from the 19th century and further on. And then how about some eight great strides for freedom in the U.S. history? I thought those would be some pretty good topics. Get you all in the mood. Get you all patriotic. Gotta love Memorial Day. If it wasn't for the people fighting for our freedoms, we wouldn't have them. So... If you are a veteran, thank you so much. I know it's not Veterans Day, but thank you for your services. And if you had a loved one passed, rather it be in a war or just someone that was a vet that fought for this country so that I can sit on my computer and do a podcast, I want to thank you all very much for fighting for my freedoms. And on that note, let's get it started. Happy Memorial Day. Memorial Day is an American holiday observed on the last Monday of May, honoring the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. Memorial Day 2020 occurs, well, tomorrow, or, well, today, I'm recording this after midnight, the 25th of May. Originally known as Decoration Day, it originated in the years following the Civil War and became an official holiday in 1971. Many Americans observe Memorial Day by visiting cemeteries or memorials, holding family gatherings, and participating in parades. Unofficially, it marks the beginning of the summer season. Early Observance of Memorial Day The Civil War, which ended in the spring of 1865, claimed more lives than any conflict in the U.S. history and required the establishment of the country's first national cemeteries. By the late 1860s, Americans in various towns and cities had begun holding springtime tributes to these countless fallen soldiers, decorating their graves with flowers and reciting prayers. Did you know, each year on Memorial Day, a national moment of remembrance, remembrance sorry, I mumbled it, takes place at 3 p.m. local time. It is unclear where exactly this tradition originated. Numerous different communities may have independently initiated the memorial gatherings, and some records show that one of the earliest Memorial Day was organized by a group of freed slaves in Charleston, South Carolina. Less than a month after the Confederacy surrendered in 1865. Nevertheless, in 1966, the federal government declared Waterloo, New York, the official birthplace of Memorial Day. 
Waterloo, which first celebrated the day on May 5th, 1866, was chosen because it hosted an annual countywide event during which businesses closed and residents decorated the graves of soldiers with flowers and flags. On May 5th, 1868, General John A. Logan, leader of the Organization for Northern Civil War Veterans, called for a nationwide day of remembrance later that month. The 30th of May, 1868, is designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers and otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in the defense of their country during the late rebellion and whose bodies now lie in almost every city, village, hamlet, churchyard in the land, he proclaimed. The date of Decoration Day, as he called it, was chosen because it wasn't the anniversary of any particular battle. On the first Decoration Day, General James Garfield made a speech at the Arlington National Cemetery, and 5,000 participants decorated the graves of the 20,000 Union and Confederate soldiers buried there. Many northern states held similar commemorative events and reprised the tradition in subsequent years. By 1890, each one had made a Decoration Day an official state holiday. Southern states, on the other hand, continued to honor their dead on a separate day until after World War I. Confederate Memorial Day is still celebrated in several states and will be on Sunday, April 26th of 2020 in Florida, on Monday, April 27, 2020 in Alabama, Georgia and Mississippi on May 11th, 2020, in parts of South Carolina, the practice of commemorating the Confederates became even more controversial after the massacre at Emanuel AMC's church in Charleston in 2015. The History of Memorial Day Memorial Day as Decoration Day gradually became or came to be known originally honored only those lost while fighting in the Civil War. But during World War I, the United States found itself embroiled in another major conflict and the holiday evolved to commemorating American military personnel who died in all wars, including World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, and the wars against Iraq and Afghanistan. For decades, Memorial Day continued to be observed on May 30th, the date Logan had selected for the first Decoration Day. But in 1968, the Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, which established Memorial Day as the last Monday in May in order to create a three-day weekend for the federal employees. The change went into effect in 1971. The same law also declared Memorial Day a federal holiday. Memorial Day traditions, cities and towns across the U.S. host Memorial Day parades each year, often incorporating military personnel and members of veterans' organizations. Some of the largest parades take place in Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C. Americans also observe Memorial Day by visiting cemeteries and memorials. Some people wear red poppy in remembrance of those who have fallen in war, a tradition that began with the World War I poem. On a less somber note, 
Many people take weekend trips and throw parties and barbecues on the holiday, perhaps because Memorial Day weekend. The long weekend comprises Saturday, Sunday before Memorial Day, and then Memorial Day itself. Unofficially marks the beginning of summer. What Memorial Day Means to Me by Patty Sawall While today was originally designed to help us remember the sacrifices of brave heroes who fought for our freedoms, Memorial Day has evolved into an event built around backyard parties with family and friends. As the official start of summer grilling season, millions of people head outdoors to dust off the patio furniture, light up the barbecue, chill the sodas and beers, and welcome sun-filled, fun-filled days of summer. And my family was no different. I grew up in a household where a three-day weekend was cherished as if it were a winning a lottery ticket. That glorious extra day off told us there was a holiday to be acknowledged, and that meant gathering people together to share a meal. Like rolling out the red carpet for royalty, my mother and father, who were true foodies before the title of the household word, eagerly anticipated dinner parties, backyard barbecues, and long sunburned days on the lake with ice chest full of picnic food. But as much as they encouraged us to partake of the festivals of a long weekend, the real symbolism of Memorial Day wasn't lost on them. In fact, my mother and father were both veterans. The military thought, or the military though, wasn't my mother's true calling in life, not by a long shot. As a young woman in 1944, my mother was encouraged to enlist as a W-A-V-E, that is Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Services in the U.S. Navy by a cousin who told her it would be great for them both. Mom, toiling through martial woes at the time, agreed and off they went through separate doors at the recruiting office. By the time the day was over, Mom was an apprentice seaman and her cousin had chickened out. As the story goes, it seems this cousin was more interested in mom's estranged husband that she was in navigating a military career. Getting mom out of the way was her strategic plan course of action. But life has a way of working itself out again. When she met a when she met and married my father, mom entered into a union more suitable to her interests. No offense to the Navy. Dad was a lover of good food and she was a darn good cook. And over the years, they instilled in me and my sister the wonderful connection between food and people, whether it's a holiday or not. And how keeping that tradition alive will help nurture our relationships with each other with friends, and with our growing families. And so that's what I think about every year. Come Memorial Day, no matter how I feel, live, or vote, there's no denying the sacrifices many made so the rest of us can happily lose ourselves in a three-day weekend with our loved ones. But Memorial Day isn't only about thanking our veterans and missing the ones who are gone. It is about all the remembrances, the sweet and the painful, 
and connecting with your family and friends who bring us joy. Maybe even more than the big four-day holiday that rolls around in November, Memorial Day is an occasion to give thanks and show appreciation for the people who have woven themselves into our lives. On Friday evening, as I sit in the bleachers in the rain waiting for a high school graduate ceremony to begin, I contemplate the menu for our family's upcoming Memorial Day barbecue. I gave a silent thanks to my mother, gone five years now, for leaving me her joy of cooking and baking for others so that I could continue her mission to bring everyone together for every holiday possible for as long as we can possibly so as long as we possibly can. Don't like how they put possibly twice. Sorry about that. Uh, and I look upward with a knowing smile as suddenly the clouds part it as if on cue, allowing the sun to break through just as the graduates came marching out to take their seats. Thanks, Mom, for that, and so much more. So, of course, when I was thinking of Memorial Day, one of the biggest things is, well, I have a lot of vets in my family, and I'm so glad that they didn't die while over in war, and I'm very thankful for that. And it makes me think about the ones that did die and how, like I said at the very beginning of this, I get to sit in my chair in America and do this podcast or do my streaming or just be whatever I want to be because people out there fought for it. And that is why this holiday is so big in my heart. But the one thing that I thought about as I was reading those two articles and as I read them to you, is what is the American dream? You know, I've always heard the American dream, the American dream, but I kind of want to get a breakdown of it. So to give a loose description, but also give some good intel on there, I went ahead and went to our lovely Wikipedia, you know, that horrible site that you're not supposed to use for research projects. But I was kind of just wanting to pull it up just to see what it said about the American dream. And that is what I'm going to read to you today. The American dream is a national ethos of the United States. The set of ideas, democracy, rights, liberty, opportunity, and equality, in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, as well, and an upward social mobility for the family and children. Achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers in the definition of the American dream by James Truslow Adams in 1931, life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with the opportunity for each according to the ability or achievement, regardless of the social class or circumstances of birth. The American dream is rooted in the Declaration of Independence, which proclaims that all men are created equal, with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Also, the U.S. Constitution promotes similar freedom in the preamble to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves 
and our prosperity. History. The meaning of the American dream has changed over the course of history and includes both personal components such as home ownership and upwards mobility and a global vision. Historically, the dream originated in the mystique regarding frontier life. As the governor of Virginia noted in 1774, the Americans for every or forever imagined the lands further off are still better than those upon which they are already settled. He added to that if they attained paradise, they would move on if they heard of a better place farther west. In the 19th century, many well-educated Germans fled the failed 1848 revolution. They welcomed the political freedoms in the New World and the lack of the hierarchy and art. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I've got a smudge here. Um, or aristocratic society. I'm sorry. That determined the ceiling for individual aspirations. One of them explained the German immigrant comes to a country free of the disposism, privileged others, and monopolies, intolerable taxes, and constraints in matters of belief and conscience. Everyone can travel and settle wherever he pleases. No passport is demanded. No policy mingles in his affairs or hinders his movements. Fidelity and merit are the only sources of honor here. The rich stand on the same footing as the poor. The scholar is not a mug above the most humble mechanics. No German ought to be ashamed to pursue any, any occupation. In America, wealth and possession of real estate confer not the least political right on its owner above that the poorest citizen has. Nor are there nobility, privileged orders, or standing armies to weaken the physical and moral power of the people. Nor are there swarms of public functionaries to devour the idleness credit for all above. There are no princes or corrupt courts representing the so-called divine right of birth. In such a country, the talents, energy, and perseverance of a person have far greater opportunity to displays in it than in a monarch. The discovery of gold in California in 1849 brought in 100,000 100, men looking for their fortune overnight, and a few did find it. Thus was born the California dream of instant success. Historian H.W. Brands noted that in the years after the gold rush, the California dream spread across the nation. The old American dream was a dream of the Puritans of Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard, of men and women content to accumulate their modest fortunes a little at a time, year by year by year, the new dream was the dream of instant wealth, won on a twinkling by audacity, 
and good luck. This golden dream became a prominent part of the American psyche only after Sutter Mill. Historian Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893 advanced the frontier thesis under which American democracy and the American dream were formed by American frontier. He stressed the process, the moving frontier line, and the impact it had on pioneers going through the process. He also stressed the results, especially that the American democracy was the primary result along with a gan... That is a weird word. I don't think I've ever seen this word before. Egalitarianism? Um, I'm going to look that up real quick. Um, Egal... Oh, equal. Okay, equal. Egalitarianism is the school of thought within political philosophy that builds from the concept of social equality. So it's almost like equal, but it's French, so it's egal. Egalitarianism. I am so sorry. All right. A lack of interest in high culture and violence, American democracy was born of no theorist dream. It was not carried in the Susan Constant to Virginia, nor in the Mayflower to Plymouth. It came out of the American forest, and it gained new strength each time it touched a new frontier, said Turner. In the thesis... The American frontier established liberty by releasing Americans from European mindset and eroding old, dysfunctional customs. The frontier had no need to, no need for standing armies, established churches, aristocrats, or nobles, nor for, nor for land gentry who controlled most of the land and charged heavy rents. Frontier land was free for the taking. Turner first announced his thesis in a paper entitled The Significance of the Frontier in American History, delivered to the American Historical Association in 1893 in Chicago. He won wide acclaim among historians and intellectuals. Turner elaborated on the theme in his advanced history lectures, and in a series of essays published over the next 25 years, published along with his initial paper as The Frontier in American History. Turner's emphasis on the importance of the frontier in shaping American character influenced the interpretation found in thousands of scholarly histories. By the time Turner died in 1932, 60% of the leading history departments in the U.S. were teaching courses in frontier history along Turnerian lines. I like how they changed his name into a whole new noun. That was interesting. What about the 20th century? Freelance writer James Truslow Adams popularized the phrase American Dream in his 1931 book, Epic of America. But there has been also the American Dream, 
that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man, with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. It is a difficult dream for a European upper class to interpret adequately. And to many of us ourselves have grown weary and mistrustful of it. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to obtain the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. The American dream that has lured tens of millions of all nations to our shores in the past century has not been a dream of merely material plenty, though that has doubtlessly counted heavy. It has been much more than that. It has been a dream of being able to grow to fullest development as man and woman, unhampered by the barriers which had slowly been erect in the older civilizations, unrepressed by social order which had developed for the benefit of the classes rather than for the simple man being of any and every class. Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter to Birmingham Jail, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, 1963, rooted the civil rights movement in the African-American quest for the American dream. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the internal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. When these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they are... They were, in reality, standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the Founding Fathers and the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. In the 21st century, the American dream has long been associated with consumerism, according to Sierra, oh my gosh, Sierra Club, Dave Tilford, with less than 5% of the world's population, the U.S. uses one-third of the world's paper, a quarter of the world's oil, 23% of its coal, coal, oh my gosh, coal, and 27% of its aluminum, and 19% of its copper. That's some stuff about the American dream. I'm not going to go over all of it, but I thought this would be something that would really open your eyes to some of what people think the American dream is. I also kind of want to go over this short little part of different countries and what they might say. Uh, it's at the bottom here. It says other parts of the world. But I just want to go over and say that the American dream to me is that equality. That is the basis of what I think most of it is, is how I love that we can take care of anybody. And 
we can give them that chance. I don't care who comes over here. As long as you are coming over here and you're taking care of, well, if we get it fixed to the way it needs to be, that's a whole separate segment. I ain't getting into that. But if you come over here and you become a citizen, I don't care where you're from, come on over. I wouldn't even care if we had someone that wasn't born on American soil be our president. It really wouldn't matter if they were really trying to help America. Now, constitutionally, we're not supposed to do that, so I'm not saying that I'm going against America in any way on that. But what I'm saying is, is it doesn't matter who you are, as long as you're working for this country and you want to be a citizen and you want to follow the rules, come on over. Let's do this. We are founded on immigrants, so why would we push immigrants away? And that is my biggest thing when it comes to American Dream is equality and that freedom. I'm going to take a drink here as we go over the other parts of the world. The aspirations of the American Dream and the broad sense of an upward mobility has been systematically spread to other nations since 1890s as American missionaries and businessmen consciously sought to spread the dream, says Rosenberg, looking at American business, religious missionaries, philanthropies, Hollywood, labor unions, and Washington agencies, she says they saw their mission not in catering to foreign elites, but instead of reaching to the world's masses in a democratic fashion. They linked mass production, mass marketing, and technological improvement to an enlightened democratic spirit. And the emerging Latini of the American dream that historian Daniel Borston later termed as democracy of things would disprove both Malthus' prediction of scarcity and marks of class conflict. It was, she says, a vision of global social progress. Rosenberg calls the overseas version of the American dream liberal developmentalism and identified five critical components. One, belief that other nations could and should replicate America's own developmental experience. Two, Faith in private free enterprise. Three, support for free and open access for trade and investment. Four, promotion of free flow of information and culture. And five, growing acceptance of U.S. governmental activity to protect private enterprise and to stimulate and regulate American participation in international economic and cultural exchange. After World War II in West Germany, after... uh, Okay, that was weird. They put it twice. Let's start over. In West Germany, after World War II, says Reiner Palmerin, the most intense motive was the longing for a better life, more or less identical with the American dream which also became a German dream. Kasamanagi, 
argues that to women in Italy after 1945, films and magazine stories about the American life offered an American dream. New York City especially representing a sort of utopia where every sort of dream and desire could become true. Italian women saw a model for their own emancipation from second-class status to their own patriarchal society. Britain, the American dream, regarding home ownership and less renaissance before the 1980s. In the 1980s, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher worked to create a similar dream by selling public housing units to their tenants. Her conservative party called for more home ownership, homes for or homes of our own, to most people ownership means first and foremost at home of their own. We should not like end time to improve on existing legislation with a realistic grant scheme to assist first-time buyers of cheaper homes. Guest calls this Thatcher's approach to the American dream. Knights and McCabe argue that a reflection and reinforcement of the American dream has been the emphasis on individualism as exploited by Margaret Thatcher and antonymized by the enterprise culture. In Russia, since the fall of communism in the Soviet Union in 1991, the American dream was or has fascinated Russians. The first post-communist leader, Boris Yeltsin, embraced the American way and teamed up with Harvard University free market economist Jeffrey Satch and Robert Allison to give Russian economy shock therapy in the 1990s. The newly independent Russian media idolized America and endorsed shock therapy for the economy. In 2008, Russian President Dmitry Medvedev lamented the fact that 77% of Russians, 142 million people, live cooped up in apartment buildings. In 2010, his administration announced a plan for widespread home ownership. Call it the Russian dream, said Alexander Braverman, the director of the Federal Fund for the Promotion of Housing Constitution Development. Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, worried about his nation's very low birth rate, said he hoped home ownership will inspire Russians to have more babies. In China, the Chinese dream described as a set of ideas in the People's Republic of China. It is used by journalism or journalists, government officials, and activists to describe the aspirations of individual self-improvement in Chinese society. Although the phrase has been used previously by Western journalists and scholars, a translation of the New York Times article written by the American journalist Thompson Friedman, China Needs Its Own Dream, has been credited with popularizing and concepts in China. He attributes the term to 
Peggy Liu, and the environmental NGO JUCCCE China Dream Project, which defines the Chinese dream as sustainable development. In 2013, China's new paramount leader Xi Jinping began promoting the phrase as a slogan, leading to his widespread use in the Chinese media. The concept of the Chinese dream is very similar to the idea of the American dream. It stresses entrepreneurship and glorifies a generation of self-made men and women in post-reformed China, such as rural immigrants who moved to the urban centers and achieved magnificent improvement in terms of their living standards and social life. Chinese dream can be interpreted as the Collective consciousness of Chinese people during the era of social transformation and economic progress. The idea was put forward by Chinese Communist Party new General Secretary Xin Jinping on November 29th of 2012. The government hoped to revitalize China while promoting innovation and technology to boost the international prestige of China. In this light, the Chinese dream, like the American exceptionalism, is a nationalistic concept as well. Some ninety percent of Chinese families own their own homes, giving the country one of the highest rates of home ownership in the world. China is the world's fastest-growing consumer market, according to biologist Paul R. Elrich. If everyone consumed resources at the U.S. level, you will need another four or five Earths. Since we've already talked about Memorial Day and the American Dream, why don't we talk about some of the great strides for freedom? In the U.S. history, the American experiment has held both high and low movements in ensuring freedom for its citizens. Take a look at the times the nation made strides toward ensuring life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The founding fathers set a high standard of ideas for the new nation to live up to back in 1776. But from the very beginning, debate about the best way to do it has been an inherent part of the American experiment. Since its founding, the United States has had both high and low movements on its road to ensuring freedom and equality for its citizens. Take a look back at these moments in history when the nation made strides toward ensuring life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For all, let's go over the big one. You know, the Declaration of Independence. More than a year after fighting broke out between the colonial militia and the British forces in April of 1775, the Continental Congress in Philadelphia finally decided to declare its independence of the North American colonies. The main goal of the Declaration of Independence adopted. On July fourth, seventeen seventy-six, was to present the colonial or the colonists 
grievance against Great Britain, but it would be Thomas Jefferson's introductory words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that would echo most strongly throughout generations to come. How about this one, the Bill of Rights? After several failed attempts at creating a government, a, a, yeah, a 1787 convention is called to draft a new legal system for the United States. This new constitution provides for an increase of federal authority while still protecting the basic rights of its citizens. In the earliest years of the new nation, many people opposed the Constitution because they thought it gave the federal government too much power over its people. As soon as the new U.S. Congress met, it began debating a number of constitutional amendments, the first ten of which were ratified in December of 1791 as the Bill of Rights. By guaranteeing certain fundamental rights, including freedom of speech and religion, and the right to bear arms, and the right to a fair trial, against infringement by the federal government, the Bill of Rights greatly expanded the civil liberties of Americans, with implications that are still being debated today. How about the abolishment of slavery? By 1862, President Abraham Lincoln had become convinced that freeing the South slaves was critical to the Union effort to win the Civil War. Though the Emancipation Proclamation, which took effect the following year, applied only to the slaves in Confederate states, Lincoln made it clear in his historic Gettysburg Address that the Union now fought to provide a new birth of freedom. Rather than simply bring the South back into the fold, passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution in 1865, abolishing the institution of slavery and granted liberty to more than 4 million black men, women, and children formerly held in bondage. What about yearning to breathe free the era of immigration? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The poet Emma Lazarus imagined the Statue of Liberty saying to the world in her famous sonnet, The New Colossus. From 1880 to 1920, more than 20 million immigrants came to the United States seeking freedom and new opportunity. Rather, they were fleeing religious persecution, Eastern European Jews, hunger and poverty, Italians, or war and revolution at home, Armenia and Mexico. The United States welcomed these new arrivals with a notable exception of people from Asian countries whose entrance was strictly limited by law, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. This relatively open-door policy 
end it with the onset of World War I, and in the 1920s, a series of new laws would be introduced to limit immigration. What about the 19th Amendment? Some 72 years after the National Women's Rights Movement launched at Seneca Falls, ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920 finally gave women the right to vote. Despite setbacks and internal divisions in the decades after the Civil War, the suffrage movement gained momentum in the early 20th century as protesters were arrested in prison and in some cases went on hunger strikes for the cause. After Tennessee became the last necessary state to ratify the 19th Amendment in August of 1920, women across the country headed to the polls to exercise their long-awaited right to cast their ballots in the presidential election that fall. Here's one, D-Day. People of Western Europe, the hour of our liberation is approaching. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, announced in a speech broadcast via radio on June 6, 1944, by the end of that day, some 156,000 American British and Canadian forces had landed simultaneously on the five beachheads of northern France, beginning the Allied invasion of the Western Europe during World War II. As Eisenhower's speech had predicted, the triumphant landing marked the beginning of the end of Adolf Hitler's Nazi forces, which would surrender unconditionally less than a year later. What about that Civil Rights Act in 1964? After years of struggle and setbacks, advocates for equality celebrate the passage of sweeping legislation that prohibits racial discrimination. In 1963, as civil rights activists protesting segregation and voting restrictions across the South met with a violent opposition and hundreds of thousands of people marched on Washington to demand their jobs and freedom. President J.F. Kennedy introduced the first major civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. After JFK's assassination that November, his successor, his successor, Landon B. Johnson, took up the cause, doggedly pushing the bill through stiff Democratic oppositions in Congress. On June 2nd of 1964, Johnson signed into the law the Civil Rights Act, which ended the segregation of public and many private facilities and outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. What about the freedom to marry? On June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling declaring that the Constitution guarantees to same-sex couples the freedom to marry in the case that led to this milestone achievement for the gay rights movement. Obergfell versus Hodges began when same-sex couples sued in Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee, declaring that their states banned on gay marriage were unconstitutional. In a decision that echoed the court's 1967 
verdict in Loving v. Virginia, which struck down state laws banning interracial marriage, Justice Anthony Kennedy declared that the freedom to marry was one of the most fundamental liberties guaranteed to individuals under the 14th Amendment and should apply to same-sex couples just as it does heterosexual couples. They asked for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. Kennedy wrote, the Constitution grants them that. I want to know, and you all have all of my information. I always put it in the description. I want to know what some of the historical events when it comes to not just freedoms, but just some historical events to you that were really big when it comes to making America well, America. I mean, I think that in some cases, America is absolutely the greatest country. And I think in some cases, we have a lot that we could fix on. And I would like to hear your all's thoughts on it. I mean, I think that in the sense, some freedoms that we have could be shuffled around or at this point misused. I'm really tired, and I'm not trying to call anyone out here, but I mean, if you want to discuss it, we can. I really think that people need to teach their um, kids or just need to teach people in general that even though you have these freedoms, life still isn't fair. I am so tired of hearing these people that act like they are privileged to this and privileged to that, but then don't even want to hold a job. I'm sorry, but... In the America that I have grown up in and the great America that I have seen, you have to be able to at least do those things to still get what you want. I do not go into work where I work at and I stop at a Starbucks for three hours, come in that fourth hour late from work and expect to get paid eight hours. You don't do that. And I'm not saying that that needs to be a right to be taken away from you. If you want to do that, go ahead. But I don't think you should get paid for it. I absolutely do not agree with the fact that people should get certain things just because this happened or that happened. I think what would be really cool, and I know it's weird, but if we had kind of a reset in our government. And what I mean by that is let's bring government back to the original of what it was. I know this would be... One of those like 10-year projects. Because if you did all this at once, it would just, it would craze so many riots and so much anarchy. And I don't want that in America. I absolutely love America. But to me, what government means is two things. Regulation and protection. That's it. That is all it should be. So what do I mean by that is through the regulation, our government should be firefighters police officers, um, making sure citizens are obeying the law, uh, military, if we went to a coup, the, I think it's pronounced a coup, um, our government or something, you know, put that on lock. But that that's kind of the regulation part. I don't think that each state should have their own governments, and if they do, they should do their taxing accordingly. But, and then protection. I think that no matter what, my amendments, I should be protected. And then our country should be protected. That's why we have the military. Those two things. 
protection and regulation. Quit with all these. I mean, I should not be able to sit there and go to a special facility that is governmentally funded and just be able to get $200 in this and that. And then because I don't work, get 200 to 400 in this and that. And then live off that until, oh, well, now it's time for me to retire. No, it's, to me, the system would work so much better if we put everything into the federal government, the state, figure out what they want, but not be borrowing from the federal government. They would have to agree on a tax of the citizens, and the citizens would have to agree on the tax to have their own individual small government if they wanted that, and start separating all this. Look, I know there's people out there um, that have disability, and that I understand that. And I understand that those people still need to be protected and because they don't need to just be uh, out on... I mean, if you're... Let, let's give an example, and this is not me attacking anyone, but let's say you're missing a leg. Okay, I get it. You can't just walk into work and do a job or do a regular job. But if we give you the proper training and we gave you an office, could you not at least push paperwork through and do other computing stuff instead of just living off of disability? Now, I'm not saying I'm saying it'd be a case by case thing. And I get it. Let's say you have um, let's say you have a mental disorder like. Or something that you can't control. So let's say it's like migraines. I get migraines and they're very bad. And thank God that since I've been living a healthier lifestyle, I haven't gotten many and I hope it stays that way. But let's say migraines, for instance. Yes, you can still collect disability, but we should be able to try to find a job that at least would help benefit society or stay at work and or stay at home and don't get paid. I'm just saying there is a lot of people out there that at this point are not asking for help anymore, but are taking advantage. And I think that's what we here in America need to switch. But just tell me what your opinions are. Again, I could be talking just straight up trash when it comes to all this. And you're thinking that I'm just an idiot or you're thinking that I'm just privileged or you're thinking that I just got that. Trust me, (laughs) I've been at the bottom and I've never been at the top, <laughs> but it's just some it's, it's some good conversations I would like to get with people on. I would love to take a plan with our full-fledged government and write it all out and start pushing certain things off for the next 10 years and just get everything lined up in a certain way. That way... We're not taking advantage of the system no more, but we're implementing the system where it needs to be. Because where I go and help these eight people, this other person that might be going through the same exact thing, I'm already helping eight people. I can't help you, number nine. I'm sorry. And now they're getting screwed. And I don't like that. I want to try to be able to help everyone that I can. I have a very democratic mind in the fact of protecting all of my citizens, and taking care of everyone because I love everyone. But a very republic mind when it comes to executing it all. 
And that's where I separate on the both sides that I don't know whether I'm Democratic or Republican because I have both mindsets very strong. Either way, if you enjoyed my podcast today, don't forget to click that support. Please let all your friends and family know about my podcast. Do not be afraid to just post up, you know, anchor.fm slash Jesse Rich on your Facebook, on your Twitter, on your Instagram, on your LinkedIn page. I don't care. Throw my name out there for me so other listeners can find me. Maybe then I'll have better discussion groups for my small group here that I have listening to me now. I would love to broaden this out and have multiple guest stars and have big implement, uh, big uh, conversations with people that go over a lot of this kind of stuff that I know you all are enjoying. Other than that, if you are into it, don't forget to check out my Twitch stream. Right now, I just uh, got Maneater. I don't know if y'all heard about that, but it's an RPG where he plays a shark, so that's pretty cool. I also stream, you know, League of Legends. I've been stuck on some Legends of Runeterra right now, and so far and so forth. Other than that, don't forget to click that uh, support page and support me monthly on my Anchor. And like always, I love you all. Later.